Welcome to Cognation. I'm Joe Hardy. And I'm Rolf Nelson. On this episode, we're joined by Manesh Gurn. Manesh is currently finishing up his PhD in neuroscience at McGill University and has authored over 20 scientific publications on psychedelics, brain networks, and related topics. He collaborates, collaborates closely with some of the leaders in psychedelic science and will join Dr. Robin Carhart Harris at UCSF as a postdoc in August 2023. Manesh is also Chief Research Officer at the Canadian Psychedelic Bioscience Company and Theotech Bioscience and runs a YouTube channel and Instagram page called The Psychedelic Scientist. I highly recommend his YouTube channel. Uh, he does some really great explainers on some of the topics in psychedelic science. And yeah, he's just really good there, which is part of why I wanted to have him on the show. I thought uh, you know, you'd make a great guest. So thank you, Manesh, for, for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much. My pleasure. Excited to chat with you guys. We talked about you know just having a pretty broad ranging conversation on the neuroscience of psychedelics, and you know there's a very exciting field right now. There's a lot going on. Uh, particularly want to talk about how our evolving understanding of the neuroscience of psychedelics impacts the way we think about um, treatment and the use of psychedelics in psychotherapy and other related you know treatment modalities. Uh, and we want to take a paper that you've written recently as sort of the, the guiding document for the conversation. Uh, the paper is a complex systems perspective on psychedelic brain action. Yes. So I thought maybe uh, I could start by just asking you to kind of at a high level, talk about what was sort of the, the thesis of that paper. What's the big idea behind, behind that paper? For sure, yeah, and I could I can get into that by first describing the motivations why we decided to write this paper, where the ideas came from, um, and it came from two distinct you could say distinct streams of research. One is psychedelic brain imaging research, and um, a lot of people might have heard or maybe not about how psychedelics can make the brain more integrated and how they can disintegrate certain brain networks such as the default mode network. And, um, and that's usually how it's portrayed in the media. It's like the, either the brain turns off this particular network related to our sense of self, related to our concepts and internal dialogue and frees up the brain uh, to be more integrated, integrated and share more knowledge and uh, between different you know, uh, systems of your brain. Um, so some, some listeners might be familiar with the idea of the default brain network and, and maybe other brain networks like the salience network. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe just want to uh, take a moment to describe uh, what, what those mean. And, and okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like what, what is a brain network in this context? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. For sure. For sure. Let's, let's back up a little bit. Okay. So, um, so that thing in your head is called the brain. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> saying, but, um, so <laughs> the brain, uh, can be separated into distinct regions. Each region has a distinct function, you could say. It does something might be specialized for, you know, um, converting the light that hits your eyes into a visual theme. Some of it might be more related to language processing. Some of it might be linked to, linked to sense of touch. And so we can separate the brain into a whole variety of regions which do different things. And interesting thing about these sets of regions is that they seem to group into clusters of sets of regions which interact more with each other than they do with the rest of the brain. And so you can separate, let's say there's 50 regions in the brain and one to 10 is the first network. And then 11 to 20 is the second network. And these are networks because they're networks like sets of different regions, which tend to um, share information with each other, interact with each other more and like work in a coordinated way towards shared functions. Right? So we'd and see so these as uh, 
or at least my familiarity with these might be also like uh, Jerry Fodor's um, idea of modularity of mind that mm -hmm. you've got these informationally encapsulated modules that sort of defines their um, isolation from other modules and then they might be interconnected as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. It, it aligns with the idea from cognitive science of a partially de decomposable system, right? It's like there's there's modularity, there's different modules, but they're they're more connected within themselves, but they're also connected to each other to some extent, right? And so you have a set of networks, yeah, which which communicate with each other, but can be separated. And um, and then the default mode network specifically, maybe you can describe what that um, has been shown to do, because these things are. I mean, they're, I think they're old hat for some neuroscientists, but they're relatively recent in the long um, history of neuroscience. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so the default mode network is this particularly interesting one because one, it consists of regions that are most expanded in humans relative to other primates and which are involved in these kind of human defining aspects of our thinking. So um, default mode network is involved in a whole variety of processes, including our ability to daydream and mind wander and think about things that are not here physically in the here and now um, to reason and think about the mental states and beliefs um, above, of other people and um, also our ability to kind of construct a self-narrative and say you know these traits this story this is all me and that's not me and it links to memory and then more broadly it's involved in our ability to imagine new experiences plan for the future um, and also remember past experiences and, and several other things. And this has been linked with psychedelics before. What's the, what's the connection? Right. Cause I mean, there's two ways we can go about that. So one is it's like, if you think about what I just described, all these functions uh, of thinking of mind wandering, daydreaming, imagination, clearly that's altered when you take a psychedelic, you know, just experientially, subjectively, these, these basic aspects of our thinking and how we conceptualize ourselves in the world are altered when you're under a psychedelic. And so on the basis of that, people just kind of inferred that very likely your default mode network is being disrupted. And then the research to, to an extent has confirmed that um, or supported that. Uh, and it started in a 2012 paper, the first ever um, modern functional brain imaging paper on psilocybin, the compound in magic mushrooms where they found that the default mode network out of all networks um, showed decreases in activity. I mean, this network is like less active, um, which in some way you can, you can understand is like a disruption of the normal way it's functioning. And so, and then people kind of ran with that idea. It was popularized in Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, really, really emphasizes the default mode network. And other work has also found changes to the default mode network. But um, I should say, and I was going to get to this, is that basically every network in your brain is altered. Uh, default mode network doesn't seem to be special in the sense that all networks are disrupted in their activity to some extent and become less integrated. And um, it might be the case that the default mode network is related to specific aspects of the experience, but this actually hasn't been consistently shown in the research yet either. We just have strong hypotheses. Um, so, so the short answer is, yeah, default mode network is involved. Uh, just sort of in reference to this idea that it's happening not just in the default mode network, but it's happening all over the brain. So this, you're thinking of this as more of a, a you know, sort of a complete sort of state change for what's going on in the brain rather than um, just localized in any one particular state. And maybe that's an introduction to have you start talking about the perspectives of this paper and some of the findings that have gone into um, your thinking about this. Yes, definitely. And so as I was just saying, the default mode network is involved in so many things, right? So to reduce a psychedelic experience to just the default mode network um, is not very, 
it gets more complex than that. You can't just reduce it to one network. And uh, what really struck me was how um, there's there's really large reductions in DeFi mode network activity in a whole variety of contexts. You get it with MDMA, you get it with SSRI antidepressants, you can get it with alcohol. Um, as you get older, your DeFi mode network becomes disintegrated over time. That's a very common thing. And so um, there's a variety of situations and contexts where this similar pattern of activity in the DeFi mode network happens, but the experience related to it is radically different, right? So then we can't just say, oh, when the DeFi mode network is like this, it means you're in a psychedelic state or your ego has been dissolved or something like this. Like we can't say that. So it's very, it's, I mean, one thing, it's very hard to map on uh, that subjective state or any of those subjective states to uh, a particular brain state. I, I mean, that's a, that's a general thing, but I think yeah, maybe especially. Yeah, cause it, well, if we break it down a bit more, like when you take a psychedelic, when anybody takes a psychedelic, you're not having the same experience, right? Like each person in the same room, same environment is going to have a radically different experience. And even you as an individual, if you take it today versus tomorrow, it's going to be a very different experience. And so then how can we ex expect one pattern, one brain state or pattern to reflect that? It's like, does not really make sense if we assume that the brain is mapping onto our subjective states, which we've obviously to expect it is, right? And so in this paper, we're saying kind of um, basically the idea that rather than seeing psychedelics as targeting particular brain networks or regions, we have to see it as shifting the fundamental ways in which the brain functions and processes information. And um, I think uh, two um, good concepts to summarize this are uh, the concept of criticality, Contact and the concept of metastability. And so these concepts come actually from physics and dynamical systems theory um, and also complexity science, which just really quick, what that is, uh, complexity science is a study of any network of distinct parts or any context in which something can be decomposed into distinct parts that interact. And you could think of this as an ecosystem. This is the analogy I like to use because if you think of, let's say, a jungle, you have um, all of the plants that grow there. You have uh, in the trees, maybe you have monkeys and birds. And on the ground, you have rodents, bugs, and all sorts of other animals. Um, and you know uh, the monkeys eat certain fruits, and then but the fruits need the ants to do their thing to support it. And then um, the birds keep the rodent population in check. It's a coordinated system. Everything's interacting. If you pull out all the monkeys, it's going to mess with the entire system. The whole ecology is going to be disruptive, right? Um, and so you think about the brain in these terms, the brain is a set of regions where if you disrupt something somewhere, it's, it's going to affect the whole brain because the whole brain is so interconnected. And so if you really think of the ecology of the brain uh, in the context of any process, really, I think, um, because everything will influence everything else to some extent. So underlying this paper is this concept of seeing the brain in this light of like, like an ecology of brain regions, you could think of it. So these concepts, metastability and, um, and criticality describe the nature of how a system like that, like, a, like an ecosystem or the brain, changes over time in response to changes, to perturbations. So it's like a perturbation might be to remove a species from the jungle, or in the brain would be to activate your serotonin 2A receptors, which is a receptor psychedelics hit. Um, and I hope this isn't getting too technical, but... <laughs> but um, no, it's good. So, that's so good. yeah. So, I got, uh, so the idea is that psychedelics, by doing what they do to certain brain receptors, send cascades of changes throughout the entire brain, which change how the brain functions. And so uh, I'll just describe criticality and metastability really quickly because they encapsulate what it means. 
I'll start with the concept of criticality. Um, so I'll try to make this as relatable as possible. So like, it, it, let's say when you're trying to function in your life, your life needs to be a bit orderly and predictable. You want to feel like you know what's going on. You want to feel secure. And also your, your body and your mind wants to stay in homeostasis. You want to stay within a certain range of states of emotion and experience. So you're stable over time. You're not just full elation and then depressed and then this and then excited and sad. You know, it doesn't happen, you know, usually within a rapid, rather rapid pace all the time. And, um, and so the, the brain is in the business of keeping us within this relatively constrained world that works for us, you know, and obviously that could be healthy for some people. It could be unhealthy for some people. It could be connected to reality, it could be disconnected from reality, all these things, but the brain is trying to minimize the unpredictability of your experience in your life. And in, in doing that, it's keeping your brain a certain level of functioning. And so one way of understanding this relevant to criticality is that the brain can be more orderly or more um, disorderly or chaotic. It's like structure, order, chaos, uh, disorder. And uh, the brain usually operates at a good balance between these two. And where you need some chaos for new, for not being super rigid, but you don't want to be, and you don't want to be super rigid. You don't want to be too chaotic, don't want to be too rigid. You have to find a balance. And so the idea is that the psychedelics push us a bit more to the chaotic side, to this threshold between pure disorder and, uh, and order. And at that threshold, it's called the critical point. And we know from a variety of systems that at that point, um, it's the best for um, having a greater complexity of activity. So you're more flexible in responding to things. Um, you're very sensitive to information that's coming in in that state. Um, and it's, it's better for information sharing in the, in the system. And so the idea is that psychedelics put in the state where the entire brain is more flexible, more dynamically changing over time, more sensitive to incoming information and it's able to process it in a variety of different ways. And it's more integrated, which allows better information propagation throughout the system. Information is able to go from region to region. And so like these, this high level description um, encapsulates how the whole brain and functions in the psychedelic state. I love that description of um, chaos and stability too. Um, I guess when I had thought about um, something like integrated information theory, which uh, I think of as uh, having to do sort of with the amount of information in a system and the entropy in a system. So just uh, sort of reaching that point at which you get the, you can sort of have the most information in the system, which would obviously be a useful thing, reaches towards that point of, of chaos, right? Where it, where it mm -hmm. sort of extends out. Um, yeah. So I, I really like the way that you explain it like that with the, with the, um, with the jungle analogy too. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. Cool. And I guess it, to relate that to sort of psychological functioning, right? The idea is that in the, in the state that is slightly more chaotic, that is past that point of criticality or really, you know, in that direction, uh, the idea is that there's an opportunity for a, thera a therapeutic opening because the, with the, when the brain is in that state, it's essentially more plastic, at least from, you know, from a psychological perspective, uh, you know, open to change. So if there are rigid patterns in the way that you've been thinking about certain things or uh, you know, there, there are uh, patterns of thought that you have that are recurring, that are negative, uh, deleterious, there's an opportunity to repattern those in a more positive way. That's mm -hmm. sort of the theory, right? 
Yes, totally, totally. It's allowing us to shift out of our usual frame and the usual constrained set of you know mental states and experiences we operate in, and explore you know new lines of thinking, new perspectives, and escape our kind of habitual ruts we might fall into in our mind. So, does yeah. this seem to you as similar to um, uh, sort of like electroconvulsive shock therapy? Where I mean, that's you know sounds a lot worse, or TMS in frontal lobe, where what you're trying to do? I mean. It's a little different because what you're trying to do in those situations is stop perseverative thoughts or just kind of see something. Yeah, no, I'm with you, Rolf. I think there's something similar there, right? You're you're, you're trying both have this at this very gross level. I think the level at which this this type of uh, this theory and these sets of theories that you are sort of combining in this work, Mm -hmm. really why it's becoming popular and more popular and why it's intuitive is that it relates to this idea. It's almost like what you're doing with with whether it be you know TMS or electroconvulsive shock therapy or psychedelics is shaking the snow globe, right? Mm-hmm. There's some you've got some patterns that are kind of entrenched in the brain and, and ways of thinking that are entrenched, and you're basically shaking it up. Mm-hmm. I mean, right at a very like very basic analogical level, right? You know, you're, that's kind of what you're doing. Yeah, definitely. I, I think like uh, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, is a bit more crude, obviously. You're just right. blasting yeah, yeah. the system. Whereas psychedelics, you're in this state, but you're still conscious. You're not strapped to a chair with muscle relaxants, you know. It's um, certainly usually. Like, yeah, more fun. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and and the thing with psychedelics is they can lead to insights and like actually you're when you're in that, like this kind of shaken up state, well, you're still there you're able to see things and have insights and process emotions and memories and stuff. And yeah. that's really important. And yeah. Talk it, about that a little, talk about that a little bit more uh, relationship with creativity too, because um, I think often we talk about creativity as um, having sort of a, a, you know, generative stage where you're, where you're trying to, um, you know, think of as many things as possible and then sort of a, a also, you know, starts out as divergent and then becomes more convergent, and that's when you sort of assess things and you know see what see what's going on. So, uh, how does this relate to what's going on um, under the influence of LSD? Yeah, I think, um, and I actually wrote a review paper on psychedelics and creativity a few years back. We linked it to the generative and evaluative phases, and kind of the idea is that. Um, uh, what we propose in that paper is that psychedelics are really good for the generative phase, right? They reduce our kind of rational constraints. They reduce our evaluative mechanisms and it allow, allow us to entertain possibilities that might have seemed ridiculous otherwise, we just wouldn't have access to. And so um, I think for creative generation, just a, a volume of ideas and a kind of range of ideas, like those can be potentially good for that, um, for the reasons I just mentioned. Uh, but also, it's like just because you're making a lot of ideas doesn't mean they're all good or any are good, right? Right. And you got to go through them afterwards and after, see what actually yeah. turns out to be a good idea and what was, you totally. know, the light of day. And and interestingly, the research so far looking at it have actually suggested that um, creativity, like in terms of divergent thinking, is more improved in the week after a psychedelic experience than acutely. Wow. So, um, and I think this could be a dose dependent thing. I think part of it is especially if you're not somebody who's like a, like a seasoned psychonaut who's like taken psychedelics many times. Um, when you're in the psychedelic state, you're going to be, it's going to be a hard time. You're going to have a hard time concentrating, focusing on what you're actually trying to think about. Um, and these kind of generalized deficits in cognition and attention might lead it to be hard to think about creative solutions to a problem or something like this. Whereas afterwards in the aftermath, you still have this lingering flexibility and openness of mind 
which is called the afterglow effect. Um, and that... and that's when that's when it's a good idea to introduce um, sort of tested therapy and uh, you know structured structured situations for that evaluative stage kind of. Yeah, totally. Or even just to then try to engage in your creative process in that few days after that huh. seems to be very effective. Yeah. Awesome. So I think we derailed you after you described uh, criticality. I think you were going to talk about metastability. Yeah. Right. So it all relates to what we're talking about. So this idea, I think it's very helpful for me, at least to think of our, our brain and then our experience as kind of this space of possible places you could be, right? It's like, you can be in a constrained box where your mind goes from here and there and here and there, but it's always within this small area. And with people with mental health conditions or just not even like a condition, quote unquote, but like who struggle with some kind of um, thought pattern that reemerges or some behavior that's very automatic that we can't escape from, we have a hard time escaping from, that our brain is like tending towards get certain states and getting stuck there and it's unable to kind of get out. Or it's staying in the same neighborhood of states. And it's hard. There's like a gravitation pull. Local minima kind of thing, I guess, and if you were to describe it in mathematical terms, but you're, I think your yeah. way is probably better. Yeah. I mean, a way to describe it is, is like a, there's, a ta there's attractors in the landscape, right? There's like these gravitational pulls where you just always seem to end up in the same area of thought and emotion. And so um, the context, uh, the, sorry, the concept of metastability uh, refers to this tendency to be able to navigate states very easily and like very easily switch between them. And actually to the extent that it implies a state of a system where it never gets stuck in a given state. It, it always transiently kind of, as soon as it gets into that state, something about that state pushes it out. And so it's always alternating between different states and you have this really big, uh, great flexibility of mind. And, um, and there was some actually uh, brain imaging research done by a friend of mine his name's Parker Singleton. He did that at Cornell, and this was published um, in a in a journal called Nature Communications. And they found um, using some sophisticated like data analysis techniques that the brain actually seems to use less energy to transition between brain states in the LSD state. And it's just this more fluid ability to switch and share and switch into different configurations or states. And um, it is goes handheld metastability, which again is like. You can find it, you can understand it as you're, you're stably unstable. That's a way to understand it. Like you're, you have a stability in the fact that you're always switching between states in this fluid and easy way. And so, does this, uh, just a mm -hmm. quick question here. So, sorry, uh, does this relate to, and I know there are some studies that show sort of suppressed or reduced action in parts of the brain from psychedelics? Um, do you think something like this might be at play there, where it's just uh, lower energy? So it doesn't it doesn't show up as um, heavy activity. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. No, no, it's an interesting concept. It it, it comes down to how energy is being defined. Um, yeah. Because uh, there's like what you're referring to is more maybe metabolic. That's energy. what I was thinking of is yeah. metabolic energy. Yeah. And actually, this study wasn't metabolically based. It was based in the nature of the network, and it gets very mathematically. It's like graph theory applied to the brain and engineering concepts. Um, but yeah, it is an interesting concept. I wonder, like, does the brain become more metabolically efficient in the psychedelic state? I don't, I don't know. That's an interesting question. But, um, but yeah, but it's this idea that the constraints on uh, brain state shifting are relaxed a bit and you're just switching between them.
And so bringing this all together, it's like what we're proposing in this paper is it's more meaningful to describe the brain as entering into this more critical um, and metastable, metastable way of functioning, which is, again, conducive to flexibly responding to events that are going on, being very sensitive to what's going on, um, not getting stuck in usual patterns and having more information sharing and integration. And um, what's interesting is that in complexity science, the science of these concepts, which again, it goes far beyond just the brain, they have a lot of quantitative metrics for characterizing these kinds of things, such as like entropy, that's an easy one. It's like how unpredictable is the signal, how much information is in the signal at each point. And measures like this I, we're proposing might be more useful in finding uh, signatures of psychedelic brain effects that are common across people and data sets and that distinguish psychedelics from other um, states more than looking at specific networks. So it's like rather than looking at specific networks and patterns of brain regions, look at the, the nature or how it, the whole network changes over time, if that makes sense. And that's uh, us drawing from dynamical systems theory and complexity science, which have are more kind of closer to physics sometimes, uh, information theory to yeah help describe, again, the whole brain under psychedelics. Well, I guess one of the uh, ways to think about this, you know, is sort of summarized in your, uh, in your paper. And I think I just want to read a couple of sentences from this because I think it kind of really captures intuitively, you know, taking a step back, higher level perspective on, on what's going on here. So psychedelics are known for their ability to induce potent subjective effects that vary widely across individuals and across experiences for a given individual. Assuming the existence of a direct mapping between the dynamics of subjective experience and the dynamics of brain function, it is reasonable to expect that this subjective variability is mirrored by neural variability. And this kind of gets at what I was saying before. It's like taking a step way back. We all sort of have this intuition if you've, if you've done psychedelics or if you've observed anyone on psychedelics or if you've done any research in the domain that something is getting shaken up in the system that things are getting in some way chaotic mm -hmm. that's a that seems like a, a, a very intuitive description of uh what's happening subjectively when you when one takes psychedelics and so then if there's th this idea that it maps onto some sort of chaotic uh state or set of state changes uh, in, in the nervous in the neural systems, then it's intuitive. Mm -hmm. Now that is, I like that, and that's what I really like about this approach. It also makes me nervous. Mm. It makes me nervous because there we're talking about things at very different levels of analysis. Like your point that like we're, your analysis is coming from information theory and you know complex systems theories approaches, and what chaos means or entropy means in those systems is not necessarily the same as what we mean psychologically, right? The fact that they're, they feel similar is what's kind of compelling about the, the, the theory, but also makes me a little bit, honestly, a little bit nervous just because when you have, when you see these things that are so kind of like, is there, they're appealing at that level of, you know, you know, taking a step way back 30,000 foot view, uh -huh. but there's no reason in principle why, the concept of, you know, entropy at the, at the neural level needs to map to something that feels like chaotic at, at right. the psychological level. Yeah, no, I like that. That's a good point. It's interesting because we're using these as metaphors for subjective exactly, they're states. metaphors. They're yeah. metaphors at the end of the day. And 
Yeah, it, it just comes down to how hard it is to um, describe internal states, right? You can't quantify them. You can't, well, you can try, but it's usually pretty like, you know, uh, use proxy measures and it's not, it's not what we're actually trying to measure. It's harder to operationalize, right? And so, yeah, that's why these things are compelling as intuitive metaphors to help people understand it. But yeah, it's, it's, we have to cut, we have to remember that they are. It's like, just because, yeah, as you're saying, it's because the brain activity is entering these different states and like, yeah, it makes sense that the, then you're mentally entering different states, but these are whole different realms of explanation here. And I think part of it is a need for more refined subjective measures, right? We need better ways to capture the moment to moment variability of the psychedelic experience subjectively, which is extremely tough. And I'm, I know Robin's very interested in that. And we actually have some stuff planned at UCSF, getting at that a little bit more and a very, you know, starting simple and then working way up. But um, it's very difficult because if you ask somebody what you're experiencing, you automatically disrupt that experience. So like, how can we find something not too disruptive, find a way that's not too disruptive for somebody to report on a regularly, you know, every five to 10 seconds or something, at least to get a sense of that variability. Um, and that's, yeah, I don't know. It's a, yeah. it's a difficult yeah. question, right? It gets you in your head too. If you're doing that, you're making those responses. And, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, I mean, there is something that does seem plausible about that connection. So, I mean, it's, you mm -hmm. know, it's kind of an empirical question. I mean, you, if, you know, if you do the right experiments, you should probably be able to find out what the, what the correlation is or, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and Rolf and I were just talking earlier before, uh, the show about, um, how you might use like psychophysics, for example, mm. to get at some of the ideas of, um, you know, the role of say entropy, you mm. know, at different levels of the, of the system based on how different types of visual patterns, for example, are distorted or not distorted based on what your priors are about those things. If you can create a system, a psychophysical system where you have an idea about like whether someone should have a prior about something visually, mm. So it's something they see all the time, a natural scene or something like that. There should be some prediction about the distortion of that relative to a, another type of pattern that is not so, uh, doesn't have those higher level priors so established. Right, right. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's something I'm in, quite interested in because uh, evidence suggests that that's related to the default mode network. And my PhD dissertation is actually on the default mode network more generally as well. And so it's a really interesting concept, yeah, how it disrupts how our own like perceptual filters or how we organize experiences and here's an interesting thing you may, you may know this um you, you probably heard of the binocular rivalry task right where you mm -hmm. and each eye is a different image and when you give that to somebody your brain is trying to settle on the interpretation but what it ends up doing is alternating between them it doesn't like one might be a triangle might be a square right and it goes square and then at some you know periodic kind of rate it switches between them probably related to some kind of rhythms in your brain from uh, frequency power but with, with psychedelics there was a study that found that it just it was like an overlay of both those uh, images like it was just stuck at yeah. one overlay it wasn't alternating that yeah. is really interesting i mean that's that's a great i mean that's a great experiment that matches up some of these um yeah some of these subjective experiences to what's going on in the brain i like that yeah and, we, we we talk about like 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 a metastability kind of thing in perception right yeah i think that's why i use the like a winner-take-all network kind of thing where... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it was an, unable to converge on a, you know, on a winner for some reason. It's like so. you see the duck and the rabbit at the same time. Yeah, yeah. That was, it was more the case after psilocybin, yeah, in that study. Hmm. Um, it was really interesting. 
but it does it lends support to the idea that our ability to organize our experience based on our priors is being altered um so yeah that's cool empirical evidence for that yeah 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 let me jump to another question you know this one is about uh consciousness and i hope you don't mind jumping into that territory too yeah yeah but have some fun so <laughs> So, uh, you know, it's hard to measure consciousness and, you know, know what we're talking about. Um, but, you know, s some attempts to operationalize this, like um, integrated information theory or um, Bernie Barr's theory, think of this as when something is conscious, that it's it's widely available through the brain. Mm -hmm. um, so it's sort of spread. And uh, that information is accessible by, you know, every everywhere else. What does that say about a state of mind where you just sort of have more more integration really yeah yeah it, it's an I mean, interesting you, question in yeah. a sense i mean that almost suggests well, you're I mean, more that, conscious this is this you're... is what the, the theory says right it, it, it's like you're more conscious on psychedelics yeah, yeah right that's what right the theory, i mean if you take it to the logical extreme right if you say. if you take this metaphor to this logical extreme right yeah. you're actually more conscious on on psychedelics yeah, totally. And and like there's been research applying IIT, like integrated information theory kind of metrics to psychedelics, and they find that there's more information. It's it's a quote unquote a higher level of consciousness according to that metric in psychedelics relative to normal wakefulness. And so you are getting more informational integration. And and yeah, it, I think it like intuitively it corresponds to people's experiences of having really rich subjective experiences where a lot of latent aspects of their mind, their memory thoughts are now disappearing. And so I think it all checks out. It's somehow creating this greater informational complexity through the integration and dynamics as well. And this opens up the level of information and consciousness and the richness of things we're experiencing. And there's, and there, there is some evidence on the flip side, right? Where the, you know, some relating back to your theory where in the unconscious state, the sort of the inverse is happening, right? Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah definitely. And there's actually, um, I just mentioned information theory and metrics showing that psychedelics are higher in inflexity. But if you look at coma vegetative state, it's on the other side of the spectrum, right? And so that's like the extreme from rigid to chaotic again, almost. It's like uh, in the sense of informationally low versus informationally rich. But of course, if you get too chaotic, then it becomes informationally low again because it's just randomness. Hence the criticality right. where you need to find that balance. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's this interesting spectrum and then it's cool to try to map other states onto that spectrum as well, um, to see where they stand. Cool. Well, I mean, uh, I guess one of the th questions that comes up for me is, or, you know, things to just talk about with regards to your paper, you're really pulling together a few different threads of theories that are out there. Do you want to talk about that? Some, how some of the existing theories of the neuroscience of psychedelics uh, are sort of integrated by by this work. Totally. Um, so the one that comes to mind the most is the Rebus model, which is the relaxed beliefs under psychedelics model. And we've kind of been implicitly talking about it a little bit. And so this model basically proposes that um, through their effects on the serotonin 2A receptor, that psychedelics um, disrupt brain processing, particularly in the default mode network that's related to encoding our kind of beliefs and assumptions and expectations about our experience, our priors, as you might call them, or like our prior beliefs and expectations, you could say. And by disrupting them, they um, kind of free up information that we had previously been explaining away or that weren't in our model of how the world is and who we are. 
because we created this idea of certainty of this is how things are, but that can never be complete, right? It has to be constrained. And then when that's disrupted, we start to realize all these things and remember things that usually didn't fit in before. And that this process then allows us to change our beliefs and assumptions in our priors to be more inclusive, perhaps, or more healthy. And then when you go back after the experience, you have a new set of expectations about yourself and your life. And this dovetails a lot with um, this whole thing of the whole brain becoming more flexible, dynamic, a bit more chaotic, perhaps. And because it, it, um, it's a shakeup of our usual models of reality, which constrain our reality. And so I think in, in that sense, it aligns with this Rebus model idea of relaxing our beliefs, relaxing our habitual ways of filtering our experience. Um, so then they could be revised in new ways. Um, so that's the Rebus model. Another popular model is the thalamocortical model of psychedelic effects. And very briefly, this is the idea that, well, okay, well, let me back up. So there's a region of brain called the thalamus, which uh, one of the things it does is it takes information from our senses and then sends it to more advanced parts of your brain. And in doing this, it kind of filters it. It's a filtering mechanism to prevent us from being overloaded by our senses, let's say. And the idea here is that psychedelic, some of these psychedelic receptors are on in the thalamus and they influence how the thalamus gates information and that it leads to a kind of influx of more information. So the, the cortex, a more advanced part of the brain gets overloaded and this leads to kind of a, you know, too much information being spread and this makes it very more interconnected, dissolves boundaries and can lead to ego dissolution and this kind of stuff. So blinking that to this complexity science perspective is the idea that through this increased information, sensory information flowing into the cortex, the brain is like pushed to have to respond to it. And so these network changes, integration, this flexibility is in some sense, to some degree related to this influx of information coming in that the brain now has to deal with. And, um, and that what we're seeing is a greater sensitive to information is just a greater openness and less gating of information. Um, so that's, yeah, how can we do that theory? That's great. No, and I love that. I love that, that, that you're, that this work kind of is pulling these pieces, these threads together and doing it in a very intuitive way. It's, it's nice. I mean, it, naturally that, that conversation makes me want to think about, um, the role of set and setting and therapeutic context and the use of psychedelics, because I think implicitly behind some of what we've been talking about, you know, is this idea that there's a big movement right now to use psychedelics as medicine uh, to assist in therapy or just to be medicine on its own. And one of the implications of the model that you're talking about is that, you know, with this increased level of, uh, you know, chaoticness, if you will, in the brain through psychedelics, very different outcomes can occur depending on what the initial state of the system is. Mm -hmm. And there's mm -hmm. an opportunity to affect the initial state of the system psychologically by this so-called set and setting. Um, and so maybe you could talk a little bit about that, you know, in, in the sort of contextualized around uh, therapeutics. Yeah. So, yeah, this this concept that the brain is the way it functions has changed, I think, aligns very, very nicely with the concept of set and setting. Right. Because the concept of set and setting basically just tells us that how our experience is going to go is based on um, the factors that are at play in that moment or like that that you're bringing to the experience. It. It's not creating something, it's catalyzing or activating what's already going on um, and already the information you're already perceiving. And, um, and for that reason, obviously, yeah, like your mindset, your expectations, your emotional state, and then your environment, the sensory information you're getting, 
the social information you're getting are going to be thrown into this new way of brain functioning. And that's what leads to your unique trajectory of your experience. And so and then, you know, theoretically, one thing you can do is if we're able to um, separate different types of people based on their baseline brain functioning uh, using complexity metrics or whole brain metrics, we can then maybe separate different types of people and have some level of predictability, uh, ability to predict which trajectory they're going to go on after the experience. Are they going to more likely venture into states associated with challenging emotions and fear or mystical states and bliss and this kind of thing? And so I think um, looking at whole brain patterns in non-drug state and using that predict drug whole brain patterns is a really interesting way to go. And there's actually a lot of research, for example, depression, where they like scan like thousands of people's brains under depression and they're able to isolate different subtypes based on their whole brain activity. And then, you know, imagine being able to say like, oh, based on this depression subtype, um, you know, a psychedelic in this context might work for you or this psychedelic, you know, ketamine is even better for you, MDMA better for you based on their brain subtype. Um, and you can make inferences based on receptors and where they're located. Like there's a lot of potential there. And so I think it's really interesting avenue for predicting effects as well. I have another question too, which is, uh, so you're doing research in Canada right now. What do you, and I, I think you have some experience or knowledge of, of, you know, research that's going on in other countries because you've been doing a lot of collaborations. Um, so what's the regulatory environment like right now uh, using psychedelics in research and, and sort of availability and, um, you know, difficulty and, mm-hmm. you know, and getting this research going? Because, um, I, I mean, it has opened up somewhat, but um, certainly not, not available yeah. to everyone to research. Yeah, definitely. It's still quite difficult. And honestly, Canada's a bit behind on it. I think Europe is a lot more research. There's like full-blown research programs at multiple universities, you know, at University of Basel, University of Zurich, Maastricht in the Netherlands, Copenhagen, and then in, in London as well. Um, Where there's a lot of buy-in that this is, this is an approach to go for. Yeah, there's a lot of funding, but there's full-blown research programs that get through ethics, you know, boards pretty easily, um, and is able to do a lot of experiments that really wouldn't fly here yet uh, with healthy subjects looking at mechanistic, non-therapeutic stuff, which is which I find the, the most interesting all the time. There's a lot of that in Europe, and in the States, there's a fair amount too, like at Hopkins, um, John Hopkins, and also now UCSF, and there's research, you know, at UCLA and NYU and and Harvard is, has their own thing now, and Stanford's making one, and it's kind of everywhere. But in the in Canada, um, there is some in McGill with rodents, and there's some human stuff uh, related with ketamine that I know about. And I know there's some things on the way in Toronto at U of T. I think the main barrier is not really, not necessarily ethics boards. It's more so funding. These studies are extremely expensive. You have to purchase the drug, which is very expensive because mm-hmm. you get it. GMP certified high, high quality and there's not that many companies so the prices are quite high um, currently there's not enough comp- competition and also if you think about it you bring somebody in and they you give them a high dose of psilocybin it's about eight hours eight to ten hours you have to be responsible right. for them for that whole time right yeah right. yeah and, and you need a physician usually who's there you need a guide and then you need all the support for eight to ten hours per person um, and then you scale it up to 30 people. Then you add in brain imaging, which is expensive itself, usually 500 an hour ish. Um, and then it scales up to really expensive studies and the federal government is not really providing that much funding for it. So there's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough time. So where, so where are dollars coming from, or, uh, 
dollars or Canadian dollars coming from for this? So in in, in Canada, it's usually um, well. Again, there's not that much work, especially in humans in Canada. There was recent like it's mostly through grants that PIs like researchers already have, and they just kind of construe psychedelics as fitting under their existing grants, perhaps, mm-hmm. and finding a way to make that work. So that's one way to do it. Uh, but the CIHR, so Canadian Institute of Health Research, recently did a funding uh, call uh, where they provided a million dollars for three studies specifically for psilocybin uh, psychotherapy. And so that was a great development for the federal government pouring $3 million into it. That was just, uh, that was last year, that funding call went out. Um, so that's showing a shift in federal funding towards it, but still it's very hard to send a send grant and get approved for it. And it's already hard enough to get grants. Now you're throwing psychedelics in it. It's like kind of, it really yeah. depends on what, uh, what reviewers you get. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you guys are familiar with that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I guess the situation is similar in the U.S., right? Like there's starting to be some funding. Is that correct? Or Yeah, but more more than more than Canada, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, Hopkins, John Hopkins University really set a good precedent. And um, Matt Johnson down there just got a multi-million dollar uh, grant through NIDA which is, you know, National Institute of Drug, drug what does the A stand for? Uh, anyway, it's maybe either of you know. Anyway, it's a major drug research, you know, federal drug research organization in the States, and they funded multi-million, multi-year study for psilocybin for tobacco addiction for smokers. Hmm. And there were all, there's other grants and money coming in for other kind of research too. So I think the tide is turning. There's more federal funding being available in, in North America. And in the years to come, it's going to happen more and more as there's more safety data, as there's more reliable evidence that they're suggesting there are useful tools, you know, clinically, but also mechanistically in a more uh, basic science way. And so I'm optimistic. And I feel like for me, I'm starting my postdoc in August. I'm coming in right at a good time where stuff is starting to take off. And let's hope it continues, which it seems like is happening. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of the, uh, on the therapeutic side, um, there's different competing kind of frameworks i mean you could call them models but really i think it's more frameworks or approaches you've got on the one side you've got folks who say it's really inner work when you take a psychedelic there's healing that's happening often uh as this story goes and but that's really done by some uh work that the person is doing internally or their brain is doing right without any kind of external therapy so it's just you take the medicine and it's going to have positive effect because there's some sort of collaboration with the ongoing neuroscience of you know that's there, uh, and then the other model is you know psychedelic assisted therapy. So you've got the idea is well you've created this plastic open s- state, and now you need to apply something positive to that psychologically to like have the intended benefit because you know plastic states can go positive or negative or all kinds of different ways. Um, where do you come down on that? Yeah, I, I think hmm, I do believe that psychedelics are inherently like neutral, relatively neutral, um, in the sense that it really depends on the context that you're in, you know, set and setting. It can take you in a very negative space, um, take you very positive. So, for example, people often joke like, "Oh, let's give, you know, Trump or some politician ayahuasca, or you know, put acid in their water or something, and it's going to change the world." But I think it could just make people more narcissistic, more all these things, you know, and. There's like people in the KK who get together with their KKK buddies and do um, acid together or do sorry, do LSD together. I should call it LSD uh, or do mushrooms together. Uh, and they don't come out of it saying like, oh, what we're doing is wrong. They go into it and go deeper into their group bonding with their peers. Right. 
And so I think um, the context really matters. And this is where the psychotherapy aspect comes. It's like that plasticity and flexibility can, if you're not supported well, you're not prepared, can take you deeper into your depression. It can destabilize you. It can re-traumatize you. Um, that's why a lot of cases, especially if you're dealing, if you're somebody with like some deep trauma or persistent kind of chronic mental health issues, you got to be careful. Um, and really, this is why psychedelic psychotherapy is so, you know, um, there's so much in it. You're getting therapy beforehand, you're healthy supported during, you're supported after, you're given integration practices, concrete steps to take. I think all that is an important part of it. Like the therapy is an important part of psychedelic therapy. Um, this is not to say that any recreational use is still totally reckless. I think it just needs to be done with care and preparation and respect and knowing that you, these things aren't just going to magically heal you. You need to really put in work before and after to, to really reap the benefits in a lasting way. Mm-hmm. So maybe thinking of this in the exact flip side. So I, I don't know as much about it. Um, and this is just history, but you know, the, you know, the weird LSD experiments, the MK ultra was it experiments in the sixties were, I mean, they would be sort of the opposite using LSD for evil, right? Um, <laughs> not for therapy, but some other sort of change. Does the effectiveness of those kinds of programs um, say anything about the potential effectiveness of uh, therapeutic programs? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it comes down to behavior change, right? Behavior, like mental and behavior change. And I think, you know, combining psychedelics with a coordinated set of, I don't know, techniques, practices, interventions can, uh, I think, can synergize really well and create really powerful outcomes wherever those things are leading them, right? And so I, I'm not sure, you know, I don't think, who knows MK Ultra success in the end? Like we don't really know, <laughs> but right, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't know we don't yeah. know anything about all that stuff. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it does suggest the power of these things as behavior change molecules and uh, mechan- like a uh, catalyst for personal transformation, which I do believe is possible uh, with them, particularly possible with them when used in the right way. And certainly, as you say, Joe, with with the use of ther- a therapist to guided something guiding it. Yeah, I think there's yeah that, that's that's sort of where I come down on it for sure. It's like you know, having some skillful guide or approach at least uh, is extremely important and helpful uh, mm-hmm. in getting some benefit out of out of use of psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that yeah that, that kind of brings up the other piece for of this for me, which is how do you think about the use of psychedelics over time? So for example, uh, you know, in my own personal experience. The, the very first time I took LSD was absolutely transformative, you know, really changed my entire worldview and, you know, was a lot of the reason why I pursued visual psychophysics in my research, uh, in my, you know, PhD training and things mm-hmm. like that, trying to understand how the brain constructs the world around us. Just get, mm-hmm. getting that sudden insight that actually the brain is constructing our perceptual world yeah. and to have that deconstructed in real time and being able to experience that was just absolutely transformative for me. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the whatever nth time that you do it, that, that there's less of that. Um, so I, I guess, how do you think about that in terms of use of, uh, is it you get, you get the message and then you, you, uh, you put it aside or, or yeah. How, yeah, exactly. How do you think about that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's very different for every person. Right. And I think some people, yeah, they have one profound experience and they just never feel called to do it again. And that's totally fair. And that could be what that person needs. Right. And again, it depends on the setting and what you're doing it, what your intention is. 
Because if, you know, people can do it many times and have fun and go to a festival with their friends or use it to connect. And I personally think there's absolutely nothing wrong with doing that. But I, I also, um, if you're using it in a therapeutic way, I think the danger is just chasing a peak experience. And so I think it's really important to emphasize that what matters in the end is how, how are you showing up in your life differently? How is your everyday day? Are you really using, as you know, the, the phrase is using those, are you going from altered states to altered traits? Right? Are you just pursuing these altered, tra- altered states over and over again? And so I think eventually, for a lot of people, like you don't really need to do it anymore, eh, except for in a more recreational, fun context, or as a refresher, perhaps. Um, but I think each person needs to find their own way to pursue it and be mindful of using it as a crutch or an avoidance mechanism or chasing highs, as opposed to using it as a as a means of real growth and transformation, you know, independent of the drug. But yeah, in the end, it's all to say it comes down to what somebody's intention is and why they're doing it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we want to be sensitive of your time. So I want to ask you one last question, which is what are you really excited about next? Like in terms of research directions or where, you know, the space is going or, or what you're particularly doing yourself that you're excited about? Like what, just what, what gets you excited right now? Yeah, totally. So like me, I'm really interested in um, effects in healthy people and like the concept of human potential and of growing beyond just being functional, right? Because like we have this slow pathology focused conception of psychology and everything in neuroscience medicine. Like how can we just be normal, functional and not unhealthy? But that's like setting the bar super low. There's so many ways we can grow beyond just normal adult functioning in a you know, a capitalist neoliberal economy and being a good person in the machine to generate, you know, to push the economy forward. There's so much more to being human and so much more to human development that's been talked about by so many theorists and thought stuff, you know, going back, you know, a long time, different cultures, etc. So with, with psychedelics, I'm interested because they are spreading the idea of personal transformation and growth. I think they're a mechanism for that and telling people that it's possible to radically change how you respond to and interpret life, that there are ways and avenues to actually get real healing. Uh, getting those ideas into the broader culture through psychedelics and psychedelic research can have a lot of, I think, downstream effects, which are very positive. And so I'm really interested in the research, just further showing us or telling us or providing evidence for how evident, how psychedelics can uh, mechanistically in terms of the brain and shift people into new ways of perceiving and relating to the world and conceptualizing themselves. And I think by providing more information on how it might be happening, it's more compelling to a lot of people. And then they're like, oh, yeah, this actually makes sense because the neuroplasticity and the complexity and the flexibility, et cetera. And that could be really like a positive placebo for a lot of people in believing in their own growth. And so mm-hmm. I'm quite excited about that. And that's why I like the mechanistic research and think it's really important to understand how, because that's, again, it's super compelling for people. All right. That's great. I love that. I love that. Mm-hmm. Manish Garan, thank you very much for being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. This is a lot of fun. Thank you, guys.